Hello, this is Philip Camella, and today we're going to do another Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. And while I'm doing some writing and taking a little break, I'm playing some oldies but goodies from the archives. This is an interview I did through my pen name, Philip Mirton, with Stuart Clark about a amazing but relatively unknown phenomena called the Faint Young Sun Paradox. Pretty amazing. Listen in. For this conversation. Hello, my name is Philip Miriton, and today we're going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution, to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now, here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Heaven at the End of Science, Philip Meriton. Now, on last week's show, we had Richard Panic, the author of the book, The 4% Universe, Dark Matter, Dark Energy, and the Race to Discover the Rest of Reality. And I'd like to add here that a few days after recording that show, there was a news report that I think was worldwide. Uh, the Scientific American headline in their website was, Dark Matter Signal Possibly Registered on International Space Station. Uh, if you actually read the articles, I think the data is still a little uncertain, but the, but the reason I'm bringing this up uh, right at the beginning of this show is that these issues, such as dark matter, dark energy, and, and an issue or two that we'll be talking about in today's show with Stuart Clark, are front and center in the news. They are opening new doors to scientific discovery and making us wonder more about the mysteries of the universe, which, be, which brings me to a point that I made at the end of last week's show, which is the famous quote from Lord Kelvin, who was, the, who was a famous physicist, chemist, back in the UK in, in the 1900s, I'm sorry, early 1900s, late eight, uh, 19th century. He has that famous statement where he said that there is nothing new to be discovered in physics now. All that remains is more and more precise measurements. And what we're seeing, I think, with dark energy, dark matter, the inflationary Big Bang, quantum theory, general relativity, is that is how wrong Lord Kelvin really was. Uh, mysteries remain in science, in cosmology, and today we're going to be talking about uh, one in particular that many people may not have heard about, and this is called the Faint Sun Paradox. An article on this topic caught my attention in an issue of the New Scientist magazine. The, the title of the article was Under a Cold Sun. The question presented in that article was, how did life on Earth get started when our young planet should have been frozen and inhospitable? Our guest today is the author of that article, Stuart Clark, who is joining us from the United Kingdom. Now, before I introduce uh, Stuart, he, I'd like to just give, give you a little background on him. He's the former editor of the U.K.'s best-selling astronomy magazine, Astronomy Now, and many other books, including The Sun Kings and Journey to the Stars and Deep Space, The Universe from the Beginning. 
He's, he's a regular voice on the BBC radio and lectures across the world, bringing astronomy to the general public. I also understand, Stuart, that you've worked on a series of science fiction books, which we'll talk about. But first of all, welcome to the show, Stuart. Thank you, Philip. Thank you so much for inviting me on. It's a real pleasure. Well, well, it, I think I think it's uh, it's really good to have people like you on the show uh, who are probing these big questions, writing articles about them for the general public, and trying really to to get out there uh, the mysteries of science and 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 to emphasize that this enterprise of science is still well on its way uh, to finding the ultimate answers. Now, I, I entitled this, this show The Mysteries in the Sky, and before we start talking about the faint sun paradox, I thought I'd ask you a little bit about your thoughts on this dark matter finding uh, or this mm. potential dark matter finding, and it, and first of all, let's let's just set the tone. Uh, perhaps uh, you could tell the listeners what dark matter is first. So those so, yes. so those who are not uh, you know reading the scientific magazines, but it, it is an important topic. So why don't you uh, take a shot at at, at really describing what mm-hmm. this dark matter is? Okay, so everywhere that astronomers look in the universe, pretty much beyond our solar system, we start to see uh, more movement than we can understand with just the normal understanding of gravity that we have. So it's as if something is pulling stars around the galaxy faster. Um, It's as if galaxies are pulling each other um, through space faster um, than we can presently understand. So there are two ways that you can uh, potentially solve this problem. One is that you can say, well, we clearly don't understand gravity and that the work of Newton and Einstein needs extending again into a new theoretical realm. Or you can say it's because we do understand gravity, but we haven't seen all the matter that there is in the universe. So there's more matter, which is generating more gravity, which is making things move faster uh, as we see them. And that's the, the line down which most researchers have gone for the last 70 years or more. And so that's where these ideas of dark matter particles come from. It's the unseen matter, and it's not atoms. It can't be atoms because we can get all the calculations for how much atoms there are in the universe correct. So we're pretty sure it can't be more atoms. Well, and I think it's, a, it's important for folks to understand, as we discussed last week, but this is, this is a rich topic, so, so a little repetition is not going to hurt. But dark matter, there's something like, five to six times uh, hypothesized dark matter. Mm, as there that, is yes, that's matter. right, to I mean, try and it's, get it's, these... It's something that people, have t- that it's easy to forget. This is, not, this is not some kind of de minimis, you know, wave or, or, uh, or, or group of particles somewhere. This is, this is five times, five, six times as much stuff as we see out there. Right. Yes, if, if that's, that's exactly correct. If the dark matter hypothesis is true, and it, we prove it, then there is much more of the dark matter, as you say, five or six times more than ordinary matter and atoms. So it becomes an ex, you know the dominant form of matter in the universe. In fact, yeah, which which is which is really an amazing topic in and of itself. Now, now with regard to this 
uh, finding or data collected uh, mm. by the, I think it's called the Onboard Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer, which is part of the, which is a, actually a particle detector on the International Space Station. Uh, mm-hmm. What what uh, do you think uh, this this showed? What what's your take on this on this finding from last week? Okay, so uh, so, so my take is slightly uh, contrarian to what has been uh, written about it in many places. In that the AMS experiment is an extremely valuable experiment. It's a it's um, a wonderful wonderful piece of technology, and in the coming years it will accumulate uh, enough particle detections to really nail this problem about whether it's seeing dark matter or not. Uh, Last week, however, it simply confirmed an observation that had been taken with a European spacecraft called Pamela Mm. and announced in 2008. And that was that there is this... uh, There's more antimatter coming from space than we perhaps expect there to be and this antimatter can be a signature of dark matter uh, in certain uh, theoretical forms of dark matter so it's 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 very speculative ams confirms that there is more uh, antimatter coming at us from space than we originally thought Uh, but there are other ways to make this antimatter not just dark matter and one of the confusions, I think, for uh, theorists and observers to sort out is there are a couple of dark matter detection experiments around the world which are also hinting at possibly seeing dark matter. But if they're seeing it, then it's a different kind of dark matter than what AMS is potentially mm-hmm. hinting at and Pamela before it. The mass ranges are very different. Mm-hmm. And it's very unclear to me how you can square that theoretically at the moment So we're in a situation of needing much more data and a few more years in order to make progress. Yeah, it seems as if when when one of these scientific discoveries comes out, you know, it's hard it's hard to know what what the media is going to do to it, because because at least in this at least in this country, you know, there are some very good media outlets, but then there but then there then there is there are a few where they they'll rush to the headlines and it happened it happened with the god particle last summer but this this was i actually seen a couple articles where it said dark matter found Mm -hmm. and of course that that was a bit it sounds like what we're saying here is that's a bit premature it's 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 extremely premature yeah Yeah, absolutely well and and i think it's i think it's important though just in the big picture that uh, first of all this dark matter, as hypothesized, takes up five is five to t- five to six times as much matter as normal matter, and that there are experiments around the world trying to detect what would probably be some kind of exotic form of matter that would fulfill the role of dark matter, but that the the investigation is continuing it's it's not as if we are in a lord kelvin situation where we could say okay it's done we found it we'll cross it off the checklist and we'll move on to the next paradox right i mean this this is that's correct this 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 is something that's in motion well i i think it's i think it's it, it's an important topic 
And it's, it's really, uh, I think it underscores the exciting times we're living in, where we have things like the Higgs boson, dark matter, dark energy, front and center, uh, where we have some of the big, some of the um, greatest minds uh, in in uh, in the world tr- uh, addressing these deep problems. Now we may segue back to dark matter and dark energy, but, but with regard to uh, your recent work, and and and, and I'm going to ask you a little bit about your interest in the sun at some point here. Mm-hmm. But but there's something that it, it caught my attention. Uh, the, this this thing called the faint young sun paradox, and and I I was really intrigued by it when I when I read it in, in New Scientist magazine, and because I had not heard of it before. So so why don't you describe what the faint sun paradox is? Mm, certainly, it's it's pretty simple in fact in that when you look at the computer models for how stars age and how stars change their temperature as they grow older, you very quickly see that young stars are cooler than older stars. They change their temperature somewhat during the billions of years that they are, uh, they are shining. And so when astronomers understood this, with really the first computer models in the 1960s, they realized that if, if you were to go back and look um, throughout Earth's geological history, there would be a time when Earth wasn't warm enough for liquid water. It would just be a frozen uh, wasteland. And if you could find that evidence in the rocks, then you could put a constraint on our understanding of the behavior of the sun. However, when they started to look um, when they sort of investigated the geology and what the geologists were uh, finding, they discovered that the oldest rocks on Earth from uh, or, you know, four, over 4 billion years ago, with the origin of the Earth dated at around about 4.6 billion years ago, the oldest rocks that they could find were showing clear evidence of having been laid down in, in watery environments. And more than that, there are uh, microbial fossils that date from over three and a half billion years ago as well. So clearly, the Earth has been habitable for the vast, vast majority of its lifetime, with life itself arising very close to the actual beginning of uh, the Earth as well. So... There's the paradox right there. The astrophysics tells you that the sun wasn't warm enough for there to be liquid water on the Earth, and yet the geological evidence tells you um, that there was. And everywhere you look, uh, when you look at the astrophysics, when you look at other stars and date other stars and uh, try and feed them into the calculations as well, they all tell you that the astrophysics is correct, and just as certainly the geology seems to be correct as well. So we've got to solve that paradox somehow. Well, it it, seem, it seems as if just just from just from logic. I mean, with without even looking at at the data right off the bat, you would think that uh, the Earth would get warmer with time. Would start off cold and get warmer. And and. I guess that would relate to the astrophysics with regard to the way a star uh, 
begins, a star begins, is, is the logic that the sun would, would eventually get hotter? Yes, the sun, because the sun is a fusion reactor, so it's, it's, it's making its light and it's making its energy because it's fusing hydrogen into helium. And that means that in the very heart of the sun where this reaction is taking place, the chemical composition is changing constantly with time. And as the helium builds up uh, in the, in the centre there, it in fact reduces a little bit the pressure of the, the radiation leaving the sun. And that means that the sun, uh, gravity can pull it together a bit more, which raises the temperature in the centre. And that generates more energy in that way. And the sun becomes just gradually hotter as it goes through what it's called its main sequence lifetime. Well, it, and, and I, I'm not sure why this hasn't been publicized more, perhaps because th- those of us who don't know about it, including me, have not read the right books or magazines. But, it, but there is a real mismatch it appears, between what uh, the theories say about the temperature on the Earth and what the geological evidence shows, right? I mean, that's... There is to an extent, yes, uh, that's true. Uh, if you are a climatologist or a sort of a, a, a paleo-climatologist um, that's studying this, most of those would feel comfortable with saying that the thing that that doesn't take into account is the role of the atmosphere and the atmosphere as we know can increase the temperature of the planet through the greenhouse effect so we certainly know that the early earth had uh, a, a very different composition in its atmosphere so one route to possibly solving this problem is uh was the composition of the early atmosphere of Earth, did that give a sufficiently large greenhouse effect to keep things warm? Uh, and there are other solutions um, as well, but that's the sort of, that's the starting point, the sort of most obvious one. Yes, and this is Philip Mirton. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. We're talking with Stuart Clark from the United Kingdom about his uh, article under a cold sun in new scientist magazine and we're talking about the potential solutions to something called the faint sun paradox now you mentioned one solution being atmospheric conditions that sound a little bit like uh global warming uh discussions but what 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 do you think is the leading solution to the faint sun paradox I think it would come down to those, the, the, its atmosphere and its a greenhouse effect. So it's kind of like a natural global warming situation that we had. Uh, but one of the problems that the, that the modelers have in doing this work is that the simulations of the climate are still not very precise, certainly not for the early uh, climates of the Earth. And at the moment, there's an awful lot of effort that's going into building different computer models of the early Earth's climate, and so that those can be compared with one another to see if they start to converge on uh, an actual solution to this problem. The 
he faints on paradox. I'm not. I'm not sure if it's if it's similar to other kinds of fine-tuning issues. Uh, among them being uh, the value of dark energy. You know, as mm. you know, for as you've you've studied dark energy, and we talked about it on last week's show. Dark energy being this unknown. Uh, turbo boost force that is in, that is increasing the acceleration or is accelerating the expansion of the universe and there's some people that I mentioned last week uh, such as Steven Weinberg who believes that you need essentially a multiverse in order to describe or explain the value of dark energy and I'm just wondering whether whether there is something similar here to the faint sun paradox, whether, in other words, whether there needs to be unique conditions 